You know, this has uh, been a long time coming. It seems like one of the things I, I think I wish I would have done is made this sooner. It's been like four or five weeks I've been saying goodbye to everybody, and uh, I'm emotionally worn out. Um, with all the uh, texts that I got this week, people telling me that they were not going to be able to be here today for sickness or other plans, I kind of wondered uh, if anybody would show up at all on my last Sunday here at the church. And then we had the threat of uh, snow, and then I thought, well, okay, the cold weather's going to help some of that. And, and um, then last week on the way out, there were dozens of people who said, we're not going to be able to make it next week either. So I'm just glad you showed up today. So thank you for being here. And uh, Clint... On my last Sunday here, brother, I'm glad you're here. You don't know how many times I prayed for you, man. You hang in there. Anybody don't know Clint? Clint, stand up. I want him to see who you are. I want you to put Clint on your prayer list. Thank you, brother. Thanks for being here today on my last Sunday. God's going to do something good with your life, brother. I believe it. He's in you. You fight it. It's for people like you, this church is in this place. And we're glad you're here. I want to thank a church for being open to people like myself and Clint, because I'm no different than he is, nor are you. And... Um, this is an emotional time for me. It's uh, not only a change, I think, in uh, callings, which is difficult for anybody at my age, but I think also leaving a ministry that I've had for almost 40 years. And it's been one, it's been, what, it's been 10 years and seven months to the day that I stood here in view of call here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Uh, I was not uh, on staff here when I came. I was on staff at Lakeview Baptist Church in uh, South Carolina, in Hartsville, South Carolina. And I stood here and you voted on me and there was 970 something votes for me. Those are insane people. I'm not sure we'd have the same turnout today on that kind of vote if we had that opportunity. And, um, and I told you, I said, take a long look, it doesn't get any better than this. And actually it's gotten worse, hasn't it? Right? I mean, just take a long look at what 10 and a half years does pastoring you people. It's hard on me, okay? I'm leaving because I'm run out of energy. I'm exhausted. I don't have any more to get. I'm just kidding. And, uh, you know, we are a family. And I know if you know anything about family, you don't always agree with family. And sometimes you agree to disagree. And sometimes you agree just to disagree anyway. But love doesn't stop because you're family. And so I can honestly say, even though I've not agreed with everyone here, and I know one or two of you have prayed for, for my, 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 my new assignment earlier before I even knew about it. Thank you for that. Should have prayed a lot harder and a lot sooner, would you? We should have prayed seven years ago. would have saved me a lot of grief. But anyway, um, I can honestly say that I love each and every one of you. and thankful for the time and the opportunity that God has, has allowed us to serve here with you. You're a great family. Uh, Mark Neese, the chairman of the pastor search committee, is going to come and he's going to share with you in a little bit at the end of our service uh, about the interim pastor. And, and, and I'm not going to have an opportunity to speak because I'm actually a guest speaker today. Um, 
your interim pastor, I'm not going to tell you who he is, but he's a great man of God. I think you will do well under his leadership. He is a great preacher. He's, he's a good man, and you know him and you love him, and I am convinced that he will uh, serve you well and serve our Lord well, and I will be praying for him and pray for you during this interim period. I know that God has divinely appointed him to that, and I think God has a place uh, for the next guy, whoever that person is in this pulpit, and you pray for your pastor search committee. Um, they're humans just like you are, and they desperately need God's leading in their life, and I'm sure they're listening to him, and I will be praying for them as well. I know them to be great people of faith and, and people who love the Lord, and I know that God will lead them uh, to the next pastor. And I'm convinced that, that I'm still praying for this auditorium to be filled. Um, one regret that I have is that I never saw this place completely filled. Mike and I were talking about that earlier. Uh, we saw Mandisa was here not long, a couple of years back, and we saw it close to being filled once. There was a couple of times when we had the Rejoices Christmas. It was pretty full, but it never has been filled capacity. Uh, granted, at that time, we had 3,000 seats, I think. Uh, some of the seats in the back, in the back here were about 11 inches wide, maybe 14, I'm not sure. Uh, they were uh, for smaller people, obviously. Uh, we tried to cram as many seats as we could in here. So we have expanded those for those of us who are a little bit larger than 11 inches, you know, to 12. And uh, so uh, we don't have quite as many seats. But I think, what, what's the mark, Mattingly, about 1,700 now in here that are uncovered? 1,800, something like that. And, uh, you know, I had this, this, this thing that I was, <laughs> uh, I'm just going to take a few minutes here because some of you are not going to stay for lunch, and I get it. Uh, you can't, and uh, but um, you know, I was wondering on the way home Friday, had this auditorium been filled when I got that call from uh, Colorado? Uh, would I have been open to going to doing this? I'd really had to think about that. It's been hard enough just saying yes because of the love that I have for you, and the relationship that I have, and, and the joy that's mine to be here. Um, I've never once felt uncomfortable in this pulpit, not one time. It felt like home the minute I stood up here, even on that first Sunday with, I don't know, a thousand plus people in here on that Sunday and being introduced. Um, even joking with Cindy in the backpack here, you know, that first Sunday. You remember that? Yeah. I watched the CD not long ago. We're a lot different now than we were then. Remember that? There were robes up here. Yes. And the choir was down here. I mean, the orchestra was down here. And we had like 12 people on the platform up here. I mean, it was, it was totally different than it is now. And I'm not sure different is always better, but it's different. But uh, nonetheless, here we are. And, and I got to thinking about that and thinking about my, uh, my, my study today and our sermon today. And I entitled the, the, the sermon today, Sovereign, because people have always questioned me in the last 10 and a half years, are you a Calvinist? And my answer to that is, no, I'm a sovereigntist. I don't like labels. I'm a, I'm a product of the uh, 60s, so to speak, and early 70s. I don't like labels. I am not a Calvinist. Uh, I am a sovereigntist. And by that, I mean I, I believe that God is reigning and ruling on his throne. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Job got it right when he said, no one can thwart or change or alter the purposes of God. No one including me and you. God's purposes are going to be fulfilled because he is king of kings and lord of lords. And I think we've missed somehow in this modern century that we have because we think that as Americans, we live in what we call a democracy. 
And we think because we live in a democracy, we have an opportunity to come before the King of Kings, plead our case, and get him to change his purpose or his will. We somehow come before God as if we are free will to the point where God is predisposed to do our will rather than his will. But God is sovereign, meaning that he is king. And even though we live in a democracy, as Christians, we live in a theocracy. He is Lord. He is king. He is and he alone is sovereign. No one can tell him what to do. And we are at his beck and call to do exactly as he orders, as he instructs. And we are to come to him empty-handed, open-hearted, open-minded, and say to him, Lord, what is your will for my life, for my marriage, for my church, for my everything, and allow him to speak into our lives what his will is for our lives, and it is ours simply to say yes, Lord, to him, regardless of the cost and in regardless of the sacrifice. He is sovereign. And I stood here uh, 10 years, seven months ago, and basically opened in this passage in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 with a totally different subject, decisions, with a new twist on this passage in sovereign. God is sovereign. What does it mean to make him sovereign? And this is how I have sought to live my life. And honestly, I'm going to have to tell you, there have been times when he has not been sovereign. He has not been Lord. He has not been the king. But there have been, I hope, most of the time where he has been, and I have sought his will, and hopefully had listened to his leading and his voice and his understanding. Because I, like you, am human, and there are times when I just don't want to hear what God has to say. There are times I don't like what he has to say. There are times when I don't want what he has to say. And he has to somehow take me into behind the woodshed and whoop up on me a little bit and help me realize I am not sovereign, he is, and I must say yes, sir, to him, and I must do what he says. Because the outcome is not going to be to my advantage. And so we come to the text in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and we talk about a sovereign Lord in that he is king. We are a part of his kingdom. He is our king. We bow to him. We worship him. We adore him. And we come to him saying, what is your will? I am at your beck and call. So how do we make God's sovereignty? God's sovereignty, first of all, rests in God's providence. God's sovereignty rests in God's providence. By providence, I mean that God alone is the one that provides for our everything. God alone provides for your everything. And some of us say, well, you know, I'm a self-made man or a self-made woman. No, you're not. Even the breath that you breathe and the life that you live, the strength that you have to do what you do has been given and gifted by you from God the Father. And without his blessing, you would have nothing. Not only salvation, but you would not have life. For life can only be given by God himself. You were formed in your mother's womb by the providence of God. And you are sustained by the providence of God. Glenn, one of the secrets and why you can't sometimes make it is because we're living in our own strength, brother. You don't have the strength to do it. We need the providence of God who provides for our needs to make what we lack sufficient. And he will provide for your need. 
Notice what it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will direct your path. First of all, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That word trust is a large word, isn't it? It requires from us a decision to trust. It means that we put total and complete confidence in God. Total and complete confidence in God. That means we are taking our hands off of the steering wheel and letting God placing his hands on the steering wheel of our lives. And we trust him to take us where he leads us. Trust is a huge factor because sometimes we have a tendency to lack trust because we don't really understand where he's going or, or know where he's leading or, or envision what he has spoken into our lives and we can't see the end product. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. And so trust becomes a huge factor. If we don't start with trust, we will not experience the provision of the providence of God. Trust in the Lord. What's the direction of our trust? To trust in the Lord. We are to trust in the Lord and in the Lord alone, in Yahweh, to trust in God. And it's dangerous, I think, sometimes to trust in God because God sometimes doesn't show us the big picture or the total outcome or, the, or reveal to us exactly where he's going to take us in the end. But yet he says, trust in the Lord and only in the Lord. And yet we often place our trust in other people and, and sometimes even in ourselves rather than in him. But if he is king and if he is Lord of lords, if he reigns and rules on his throne, if no one can thwart the purposes of God, if he holds your life in his hands and he has all of the resources at his disposition and his disposal to make happen what he wants to happen in our lives, how can we not trust in the Lord? But the cliche or the glitch is this, with all your heart. Here's, here's the problem. It's with all my heart. It's with every aspect of my being, with, with every fiber of the totality of my personhood. To trust in the Lord with all your heart, all of the faculties that are within you. To trust him with everything and everyone. There's, there's the problem with trust, isn't it? To, to come to him open-handed and say, Lord, here's my finances, here's my future, here's my family, here's my marriage, here's my job, here's my career, here's my all. To trust him with all because that, that reality is difficult, isn't it? To trust him with everything. Totality. Exclusivity, trusting him in everything. There's a passage in Matthew 19. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. It's not on the screen. But there's a passage in the Bible about, about this man who had a hard time trusting Christ. In Matthew 19, verse uh, 18, it says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Another one perfect, close to myself. And Jesus said to him, that's a joke for those of you who are visiting. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But notice what happens. You know the story. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What did this man value? Some would say he valued his possessions. I contend that he valued control. He valued control. He couldn't let go of the steering wheel. 
He put his trust in his finances, but his finances were achieved by his own merits, by his own work. And he's saying to the Lord, I want to follow you, but I can't follow you unless you let me be in control. And we must rest in God's providence. We've got to relinquish control and release it to him. Let him lead us and guide him, guide us as the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords of our lives. We are to come to him open-handed, open-hearted, open-minded and say, Lord, speak into my life. I will follow you whatever the cost. You, Lord, are in control. God's sovereignty rests in his providence. Secondly, God's sovereignty reaches for God's perspective. It reaches for God's perspective. Notice in the text, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And lean not on your own understanding. And lean not. There are two words in the original Hebrew. And that dictionary, in the Hebrew dictionary says, and lean not. That one word means to make oneself comfortable. I want to allude to that first because I don't know about you, but I like comfort. I've learned as I've grown older that you must eat well, sleep well, and ride well in order for life to go well. Come on. Don't you? Eat well, ride well, sleep well. Those three things make life pretty good, don't they? Any one of those out of the way. If you don't sleep well, life's not going to go good. If you don't eat well, and you can tell I eat well, and we're going to eat well in just a little bit. Because we have some great cooks here. And uh, Miss Betty has some peach cobbler that's only mine. No one else may have any of that. Uh, it has bugs in it, so you won't like it anyway. So just stay away from mine. And it's about comfort, isn't it? The reason we lean on our understanding is because it's about our comfort. We somehow have this understanding that I know what is best for my comfort. And if God takes me out of my comfort zone, then I'm going to have a hard time. So I want to lean on my own understanding. But and lean not also means to support oneself or to depend upon oneself. I'm looking for support. Where am I finding that support? Where, what am I leaning on? I'm leaning on my own understanding, my own capabilities, my own rational thought, my own insight, my own perspective, my own intellect. And we often have a tendency to come before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and say, Lord, you don't want me to check my mind at the door, do you? So therefore, I'm going to bring my mind to the door, my understanding to the door, my perspective into the situation. And I'm going to dictate and determine to you exactly what it is that you must do for me to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And God says, you and I are not on the same page because your ways are not my ways and your thoughts are not my thoughts. Because you are very human and you are not God. Our own understanding, our own insight, our own perspective. Two weeks ago, we talked about in Numbers 12 and 13. 13 and 14, I'm sorry. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to Numbers 14. I want to, Numbers chapter 14, I want to point another scripture out in this, this illustration here. In chapter 13, they're at the doorstep of the promised land. And they sent 12 spies into the promised land, and 10 came back with a bad report, and 2 came back with a good report. They trusted the majority, and the majority is not always right. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the majority is mostly wrong. And the ten came back with a bad report, and two came back with a minority report, and the minority report lost, and the, the majority won. And they grumbled and griped against God and against the leadership, and we talked about that two weeks ago. 
And then God and Moses had a conversation, and God told Moses, these people, I, I can't put up with them any longer. I'm going to send them out, and this whole generation is going to have to die off, and I'm going to have to raise up a whole new generation before my promise will be fulfilled. And when the people heard that, they rebelled against God. How did they rebel? Notice the passage in Numbers 14, beginning with verse 39. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that God has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country through their, through, though, although neither, I'm sorry, although neither the dark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Mormah. Notice here this important thing. They devised themselves their own strategy. They took matters into their own hands. And they were going to seize the promise of God in the flesh. They had a different perspective than God's. And I've learned and I've discovered in my own life, when I say no to God, he always takes me to the woodshed and he disciplines me. Doesn't he not discipline you? Because if he doesn't, then more than likely you are not his child. The Bible says that he disciplines those that are his children. And those that are not his children do not get disciplined. So if you don't know about the woodshed and the disciplining of the Lord, then you're probably not a child. And he will discipline. And he disciplines us when we say, you know what, God, my perspective is greater and higher than yours. Therefore, I'm going to reach for my perspective in this circumstance, in this situation, and completely ignore yours. I'm going to lean on my own understanding rather than your understanding, Lord. And do what I want, the way I want, when I want, the way I want, and completely ignore you. And the results in my life have always been catastrophic. God's sovereignty rests in God's providence. It reaches for God's perspective. And number three, it responds to God's plan. Responds to God's plan. God has a plan. God is an intentional God. God is not a coincidental God. God never goes, oops, I made a mistake. And I've told you this before. We were at a funeral once where the pastor who was doing the funeral said, you know, in the Old Testament, God had a way of saving people. And then he said, oops, I made a mistake. So he sent Jesus for a different plan than the original plan that he had. The same plan in the Old Testament, the same plan in the New Testament is Jesus from Genesis 1 through the book of Revelation. It's Jesus the whole way. God didn't go, oops, God's not a... An accidental God. He is a coincidental God. And he is an intentional God. He is a God who does what he says he will do. And he has a plan. And notice that in all your ways acknowledge him. In all. The word all is, is a large three-letter word in our English vocabulary. It means exactly that. The totality, the completion of everything in every way and everyone. It means in all your ways. 
in the way that you journey through life, in the way that you live out your life, in the decisions that you make, in the things that you think, in the things that you feel, in the relationships that you have, in, in the business that you involve yourself in, in the ministry that you do, in all your ways. Acknowledge him. That second word in the original language, acknowledge him, means to recognize God's rule. To recognize his rule. To means that God has an overriding, leading right to be able to lead us and guide us as he dictates and determines. To acknowledge him in all of our ways. To acknowledge him. Turn to Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Let's look at an example there in the New Testament. Matthew 14, 22. It says, Immediately he made Jesus, his disciples, to get into the boat and to go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone by the boat. By this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves. I'm sorry. Matthew 14, 13. I'm on the wrong page. <laughs> Now, when Jesus withdrew from the boat to a desolate place by himself, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, notice what Jesus says in this passage, verse 16. They need to go away with, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now, I thought about that for a minute. Why did Jesus tell them, you give them something to eat? Jesus was well aware of the difficulty of the mission that he was giving them and the impossibility of fulfilling that mission without him. He wanted them to acknowledge and to recognize their inability to fulfill the task independently and apart from him. Without him, they could not fulfill what he's asking them to do. But they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. That's all I got. We, we can't do it with the little that I have. The reality is when God has a plan, you, you, you bring some talent, some ability, you bring some skill into the mix. But what you have can't fulfill nor can it accomplish what he is asking, what his plan wants to fulfill. And you bring in and you offer to him. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. He wanted them to confess their lack so that they would commit to his leading, so that as they did, he would then supply what was necessary in order to accomplish that what he wants to do. God has a plan, and he invites us to join him in that plan. He wants us to make ourselves available to him in that process so that as we bring the little that we have to bring to the table, which is insufficient in and of itself to do what is necessary and required to be done in order to accomplish God's plan, we bring it to him and he takes what we have and he multiplies it. And notice 5,000 men, not sure why the women and children were not counted. Thousands of people were blessed by their obedience to the Lord. 
When you respond to the call, to the leading of the Lord, and you choose to acknowledge him in all your ways, he will fulfill that which he plans to fulfill. Not what I plan or you plan or we plan, but what we plan. No, what he plans. What he plans. God has a plan for your life. I'm picking on you, Clint, today. God has a plan for your life, brother. You're not an accident. And all things work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things. Even the bad things. And God can take the life that sometimes has some pretty, pretty tough downs, can use it to mold and shape you and use it for his glory if you'll let him. There's a plan for your life, for my life, for our life, for his church. And if we will say yes to the sovereignty of God and let him reign and rule, his plan will be accomplished. And I'm still convinced that his plan is to fill this auditorium with people. Number four, God's sovereignty relies on God's power. Relies on God's power. It says here in the last part of the verse, trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways. And here's a beautiful promise. And he will direct your path. And. That, that's, that's in the original language. And. It's in the Hebrew there. I'm not a Hebrew scholar or a Hebrew expert, but I do have some tools that help me see words in the Hebrew and, and define them in English for me. And uh, my pronunciation of Hebrew is horrible, even though I speak Portuguese and a little Spanish and, and poor English. But other than that, um, the word and is there. It's a conjunction, and, it, and it's there strategically, I think, by the Spirit of God to help us link what God has said to what is about to be promised. If we will trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding and in all of our ways acknowledge him, this is what God will do. This is what he'll do. It's a promise to those of us who fulfill the other three things. This is what now God will do. And he shall. He shall. And he, there is a personal pronoun. He, Yahweh. This is what God will do. Not man. This is what God will do. Not we. This is what God will do. It always makes me uncomfortable when people have a tendency to take credit for what God has done. And if in reality, everything that we enjoy, God has done, can we and should we ever take credit for anything whatsoever? And he, notice the promise, shall direct he shall direct. That means that he will make straight. He will make level your path, your journey. He will make level. He will make it straight as possible. Without any detours or dead ends or side trips, he will lead you directly down the path of his righteousness. It doesn't mean that, that there won't be obstacles he will remove the obstacles. It doesn't mean that there won't be opposition. He will take care of the opposition. It doesn't mean there won't be valleys. He will be there in the valleys because the psalmist said, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. But it means in the highs and the lows and the ins and the outs and the obstacles and the opposition, God will be with you and he will make your path straight. 
so that you can fulfill and accomplish the plan and the purpose and the provision and the sovereignty of God. Matthew 14, 22. I started reading that earlier. Turn over to there, Matthew 14, 22. It said, immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And while he dismissed the crowd, and after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the Lord by this time was long away from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now watch what happens next. You know the story. And Peter answered him, saying, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I would say that's incredible faith, wouldn't you? I mean, he's leaning over the side of the boat and he's saying, hey, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come to you and I can walk on water. Some would say this is Peter's act of faith. He stepped out of the boat and he walked on water. I would certainly say, yes, that is faith. You know, there's a lot of people who say they trust the Lord and they trust the Lord verbally, but they never trust the Lord practically. Oh, they talk a good talk and they talk a good game and they can quote the scriptures and they can even do well in a life group class and maybe even a pulpit like I'm standing in today. But it's all talk. You see, faith is a verb. It's an action. It's not just talk. And Peter's talking a pretty bold talk. And we would applaud him for that talk. But notice what happens. He said, Jesus said, come. So Peter, Peter got out of the boat and he walked on water and came to Jesus. And we would certainly say that is definitely an act of faith, isn't it? I mean, the dude stepped out of the boat and now is walking on water. He's defying gravity. Keep in mind, there's a storm happening right now. The wind and the waves are beating up against his body, and he's got his eyes on Christ. And we would certainly say, man, this guy is walking by faith. He has put his faith into action. He didn't just speak his faith and his trust, but now he's walking on water. And there's some who say, you know what? He's walking on water. He's walking on water. He's, got a, he's a man of faith. And there are many people who think because they're walking on water, they're exercising their faith. But as we're going to see, that's not going to be enough. Verse next, 30, and when he saw the wind and the waves, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. All of a sudden, he took his eyes off Christ and began to feel the, the pressure of the waves and the winds. And he began to see what was going on. And he began to sink. And we say, well, he shouted out to Jesus an act of faith. Lord, I believe you can save me. Reach down and rescue me. That is an act of faith. He stepped out of the boat. That's an act of faith. He's walking on water. That's an act of faith. He cried out to Christ, believing that Christ could save him. That's an act of faith. That's not, not the kind of faith that we're talking about. His faith isn't complete yet. And Jesus immediately reached out. His hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Your faith hasn't matured yet, buddy. <laughs> you strike that as kind of weird, man. I mean, this guy stepped out of the boat, he walked on water, defied gravity, walked a little while, and then began to sink and cried out to Jesus, had enough faith to believe that Jesus could save him. Jesus saved him. And Jesus looked at him and said, You don't have enough faith, man. You got little faith. It's not enough faith. What's the culmination of the completion of the maturity of this man's faith? Simon Peter. Notice what happens. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. 
When he was hand in hand with Jesus, they were walking on the water and he was trusting. He was getting his strength. He was defying gravity hand in hand with Christ. Christ is now with him. And together they walk to the land and they arrive safely and the wind ceases. Complete faith, powerful faith, productive faith, genuine faith. Walks hand in hand with Jesus. And when that becomes a reality, the power of Christ is revealed, displayed, enjoyed. And he will direct your path to fulfill that which he seeks to accomplish. One of my favorite stories, and my assistant Angela and I were talking the other day, and she mentioned this story is one of my favorite too about the little boy and his dad and they were in the car and they were going to the grocery store and it was on that Saturday afternoon and um, the father got in the seat in the driver's seat you know and began to turn the car on he turned to his son and said you got to sit down and buckle up I don't want to buckle up daddy no you got to buckle up son I told you you got to buckle up the car will not start unless you buckle up I don't want to buckle up daddy why not well if I buckle up sit down I can't see anything he says son you're going to have to sit down and buckle up it's a law I don't want to sit down and buckle up they had this discussion finally the dad in exasperation put his hand between his son's legs and the back of the seat whisked him down he sat on the chair and buckled him up before he could say a word and they drove to the grocery store in silence and finally about halfway there the father looked at the little son and he said, are you okay? And he looked at his daddy and he said, daddy? He said, yes, son. He said, I'm standing up on the inside, daddy. <laughs> when do we trust in the Lord with all our heart, lean not on our own understanding and acknowledge him in all our ways? It's not just an outward thing. It's an inward thing. It's a heart change, a heart transformation where something happens in here that begins on the inside, that reflects outwardly. So many times we reflect outwardly without an inward change. And then we wonder why we have a hard time letting the Lord direct our path. Without a heart change, there won't be a life change. And I encourage you today to search your heart. And ask the Lord, Lord, is there a need for a heart change today? Not just with my mouth, not just with my actions, but in my heart. So that what happens is genuine, it's authentic. It's not just a show, it's real. Because my heart has changed. Let's pray.